One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite our historians to get angry with leading figures in history and leading figures in popular culture. And today we're bringing you a bonus special that we will start to do with increasing regularity. So this is not just a spoiler warning, but a ruination warning, as tonight we are ripping apart the latest movie release, Napoleon. Now, joining us tonight, in addition to the episode that he has out this week, we welcome back a man who is no fan of Napoleon the Man, and it turns out he's no fan of Napoleon the Movie. I dread to think what he would make of Napoleon the Musical. But welcome to historian, podcaster, and chair of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Games charity, and regular rager, Dr. Zach White. Zach, you just can't stay away, can you? You Look, it's your fault. You said it was therapy. And this I'm classing as an emergency therapy session, quite frankly, because walking out of that cinema, I I think I probably got straight on the the phone to you and said, look, we we need another rage about this. The the experience was like, it's that bloody traumatic. I kid you not. It was a matter of minutes. And looking at the selfie that you posted on Twitter, I did feel that some form of intervention was necessary. I mean, this is for my own health, right? That's It's because yeah. you've got my best interests at heart that you're having me back. Indeed, because you're not just a regular rager, you're a friend and you've got to look out for your mates, haven't you? You have indeed. Although, just to be honest, this is what the... It's actually the fourth time I've come and raged for you because we did this at Chalk Valley, didn't we? we? We did, yes. Yeah, you are in fact our most regular rager. I'm, I'm proud to... <laughs> do I get a badge? Uh, why not? Why not? Let's put you one together. You've got a mug, you might get a second one. Who knows? So you've you've been to see it. I haven't been to see it because I've kind of kept away from it on the basis of doing this. I, I want to be surprised by a few things, but let's kick off. Give it both barrels then. What do you actually think? I think we have to start with the question. Ridley Scott, are you okay, hun? <laughs> Not only did he take a dump on the entirety of the historical profession, Not only did he use some of the most nonsensical arguments ever spouted on history, which I'd expect, frankly, from an over-emotional teenager 
rather than one of the most respected directors in cinema history. But he did so in defence of a film that was more historical fantasy than biopic. And before people come at me with the, oh, well, we shouldn't expect films to be historically accurate, bitch, please. I have been saying that since the first trailer dropped in every damn YouTube reaction video, interview and review that I've done since. Normally, it would be a totally legit comment, but watch the damn film. Because I shit you not, it is easier to list the things that are historically accurate than the inaccuracies. So yes, it's a film. Yes, it's meant to entertain. But there is one teeny tiny incy-wincy little problem with that. It's so badly written, so crass with the complexity of the humans in this story, so trivial in its handling of the fact, so devoid of emotion, that you leave the cinema not giving a toss about who Napoleon Bonaparte was, why his life matters, why we should bother even knowing about the Napoleonic era. Ridley Scott has done a rare thing. He has made a film about Napoleon that makes his life seem boring. And he didn't need to wipe his ass with a history book in order to publicize it. Oh, oh, now I get you on making historical figures like that, Napoleon, uh, as, as being dull. I mean, one of the reasons that I didn't really carry on with any sort of academic route into history is I had a history teacher that managed to make the Wars of the Roses dull. I mean, the Wars of the Roses, you take the dragons out of Game of Thrones, and that's what the Wars of the Roses effectively is. And yet they made that dull. And that's a, that's a history teacher. For that? I mean, I'm not, I'm not being funny, but you've got Tudors. Everybody, everybody enjoys the Tudors. Surely. Except Al Murray. Except Al Murray. I mean, admittedly, I do feel this is a whole other rage. The Tudors are done to death and the Stuarts are more interesting. There you yeah. go. There's my historical hot take that people don't like, but it's true. Come out. And if you want more on that, then do check out Series 4 and Charlotte White. <laughs> exactly. Charlie, no relation although I do sometimes refer to her as my podcasting wife because we have done episodes together. But Char- Charlie understands these things. But yeah, it's 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 an achievement, genuinely. And, and I think it's why people find this film so baffling because I've, I've looked at a lot of people's reactions, spoken to a lot of friends, and everybody comes away from it. And the reaction is just, what the hell? Because when it comes to Napoleon, it doesn't matter if you love him or you loathe him. The point is the guy generates emotion. You read his story and you can be impressed, you can be disgusted, you can idolise the guy, you can respect his military talent. I don't care what you think about Napoleon, actually. I've got my opinions. I was quite vocal about them last time I was on. But the bottom line is, you feel something, anything, about the guy. You walk out of this film, I, I walked out of this film as somebody who spent God knows how long researching the Napoleonic era, and I did not care. How how can you do that with somebody who is nose deep in a suspicious white powder of Napoleonic intoxication? Yeah. And and, and, and I, I don't even know if you can actually leave that in the final episode, quite frankly. He is so important that they actually named the era after him. You should care. You you should understand something. You should feel something. There should be a you shouldn't just be bored and nonplussed and and kind of I, I tell you what's also irritating you don't understand why why napoleon why is it napoleon that gets to the position that he is and not just some other guy and that is 
it's so many things, but above all, it's apocalyptically bad script writing. And it didn't need to come from Ridley Scott. Yes, okay, Ridley Scott and historical films, there's a whole side rage to be had there. Yeah, which we're going to come on to show shortly, I imagine. Absolutely. But The Martian, that's, that's my yardstick. He directs The Martian, which is one of the films that I'm not ashamed to admit I cry at at a certain point every single time without fail. This guy knows how to tell a story. This guy knows actually how to bring accuracy into a film. Because if you talk, I spoke to Dr. Kit Chapman, who's a yep. cracking science historian, journalist. He lectures on journalism. He knows where that boundary is between fact and entertainment and all the rest of it. And we were discussing The Martian, and he said there are actually only two things in that entire film that are bollocks. So he can bother to weave together a story that is factually sound and makes you feel something. So what the hell was he smoking when he sat down to shoot this? So the first thing that comes to mind with me is two questions. Like you say, movies aren't supposed to be documentaries, and you've outlined one uh, area of beef there. But, you know, I've got to ask is the, the inaccuracies in it have clearly pissed you off. So, so that I'm going to go in with question one then. Tell us about not just the inaccuracies that are, that are there. We all have inaccuracies. They like to say movies are not documentaries, but the, I get the impression that there's some serious howlers in there that you've just going, what the fuck were you doing? Go. I mean, I kid you not, there is a point where Ridley Scott straps a fucking telescope to a Baker rifle in some bizarre Call of Duty Napoleonic crossover to make some ludicrous sniper rifle that nobody ever saw wanted would be useful anything and then there's this pointless line of dialogue that is handled with such inconsistency that three minutes later if you've actually paid any attention you go why the fucking hell did he just do that there's so it the reason this this thing even happens is it's to do with waterloo and we are we are doing a question on waterloo i'm not even giving you a choice on that we're going to rage about waterloo because you've done it before you can do it again too right but when it comes to this depiction there's, there's a famous comment where Wellington is asked if by an artilleryman if he can open fire because Napoleon's ridden within range. Now, Ridley Scott looked at that and went, hmm, I can make it better because Call of Duty is a thing. And what we need is to extend the effective range of a Baker rifle, which was about 300 yards. Mm. And let's move that out to more like 2,000 yards. And we'll solve that problem with magic and just sticking this bloody great telescope. I I kid you not, it is one of the most bizarre things I have ever seen in my entire life, truly. And this guy turns around, this rifleman turns around to Wellington and goes, my lord, Napoleon's within range, do I have permission to take a shot? Which makes complete sense with artillery and zero sense with a rifle. Because it might be a rifle, but this is the Napoleonic era. These These are better in terms of precision accuracy but precision weapons do not exist during this period so he can turns I, around can to i just kind of duck in there as well because the yes. thing that occurs to me there is you can slap as many telescopes on a weapon as you like it does not increase the range of the projectile and also how the fuck do you sight something like that what are you going to do to the end of your telescope to know what your drop is it's just, I, I just, I don't. But then it gets worse because he asks Wellington, can I take this shot that would never happen in a billion years? 
And Wellington turns around with the response that everybody knows from history. It's actually in the, the 1970 film Waterloo. And he says, no, commanders have something better to do than shoot upon, shoot upon one another. And it's sort of one of these very sort of gentlemanly, grandiose, Wellingtonian yeah. types things. The trouble is, about three minutes later, the rifleman takes the shot. Now, why do we care? Because Wellington follows up his, no, people have got better things, generals have got better things to do than one another by saying, that on pain of death, the rifleman is not to take the shot. Now, admittedly, I am a crime and punishment nerd, and I will rant about the importance of discipline and all the rest of it until mm. the end of time. However, if your commander-in-chief tells you that if you take the shot, he is going to have you executed, you don't then take the shot. That, that's quite a fundamental, basic thing in terms of script writing. But he takes the fucking shot anyway. That's That's not even... That's not even historical accuracy at this point. That is just plain laziness, sloppiness in terms of script writing that doesn't need to be in there. And that's, that's just one of so many examples that you've got in there. The whole Josephine dynamic is just frankly bizarre beyond. So Napoleon is basically cast as this love struck, horny teenager all the way through the movie. And it completely belittles the Napoleon-Josephine story. Sure, Napoleon was immature early on when it came to the whole thing about love. He was needy. Yep. His love letters, often to me, feel more agonising than romantic, but who am I to judge? But there are certain things that were not characteristic of their relationship. Whining like a dog and pouring Josephine until she agreed to have sex with him was not part of his game. That was not his move. I'll tell you what also wasn't his move, seducing her by grunting like a pig and pulling her underneath the dinner table. These are such ludicrously, why the bloody hell would you even think that moment, that it doesn't even matter if you care about the history. You just look at that and go, nobody ever on any dating app, on any date, at any point in the history of humanity, has seduced someone by grunting at them like they're a pig. I, I, I almost yeah. wonder if he's confused Napoleon out of Animal Farm with Napoleon the real guy. <laughs> yeah, some seductions are more equal than others, aren't they? Indeed, indeed they how, are. Yeah, how do you look at that and think, think, think that, yeah, that's how anybody, I mean, I speak as a man that's been married twice, you know, and I will guarantee you, at no point in my in my time have I have I thought I'll not take her out to dinner. I'll do the whole grunting thing. I'll save myself a ton of cash and still get laid. It's 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 a novel technique. I mean, admittedly, yeah. it's it's. I mean, maybe we've got it wrong. Maybe we haven't tried it. Maybe Ridley Scott is onto something. You know, after all, we weren't there. So how do we know? Maybe, <laughs> maybe he's, he's found that this is, is highly successful, but I would be very interested to know if any of your listeners have ever listened to a pig in a farmyard and thought, mm, yes, I know what I want to do. Yeah. I, I, I just, I just don't see that happening. Yeah. This is like any pig noises going on. You don't turn to your good lady and see that she's really getting in the mood, do you? I, I really, I really don't think it happens. Well, do get on Twitter, History Rangers, if you disagree with us. Like we say, come, come at me. You know, I'm a 50 year old Yorkshireman. I'm not going to swear to be, you know, good at seduction. 
But yeah, words I mean, fail equally, me. if it does it for you, I'm not going to judge. But I'm just not convinced it's a thing. <laughs> and uh, why would you, when you when you strip it back to the history, why would you do that? Because there are points where they are clever with the Josephine story. They use the the letters back and forth as a plot device to help move time on, which is a massive challenge and it's a big problem in this movie. Actually, they are trying to tell way too much in far too short a time span, and it suffers massively. Mm. And we can talk about that in just a sec. But because you've got those letters, and everybody knows about the letters to Josephine, everybody, it, it, even if you just know about romance, it's one of the things that's meant to be up there, right? It's it's a Romeo and Juliet style thing. When you think about romance, quite often you think Napoleon and Josephine. It's not that hard. You've got the material right in front of you. Mm. All you have to do is pick up a sodding book to try and work out how does Napoleon go about communicating with this woman in order to try and seduce her? And then you could work out, and you could even say, well, look, Zach, he was so needy. Perhaps he was kind of, kind of whining and, and sort of trying to chide her into bed. But it's, but like, I, I kid you not, there, there is a scene where he goes, oh, my poor wife. Oh, it's making it's, me cringe already. Exa- exactly. And you're sitting there in a cinema thinking, somebody shot this and the actors, somebody wrote this. The actors had to look at it and go, are you sure? And full credit where it's due. Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby do an absolute blinding best that they possibly can with the dog shit that has been put in front of them. But you, there, I don't understand how you look at that at the end of a take and go, yes, that's exactly what I wanted. I, I just, it baffles me. It's not like the story of Napoleon needs more, like, drama or craziness adding to it, either. Or animals. You know? Or animals, in fact. I mean, yeah. I mean, we've got dogs, we've got pigs. I'm surprised that we didn't, like, have, I don't know, horses and, and chickens. Yeah, why um, not? Why not, if it works why for not? ladies? So, while, while we're on the subject of great, like, Ridley Scott Howlers, then, I have to say, we've got... In that background there, we've got Kingdom of Heaven, which completely manages to miss the point of Crusades. It does. We've got Gladiator, which kills an emperor in the arena. It does. And who can, who can, of course, forget the epic wooden D-Day Higgins boats of Robin Hood? Mm. I keep forgetting that he did Robin Hood. Yeah. And, and those, those landing craft yeah. are hilariously awful. So this brings me to my follow-up question, which is, what the hell did you expect? See, that is a legitimate point. That is genuinely ge- legitimate. But for all that he does play dominoes with siege towers in Kingdom of Heaven, and that is almost wet yourself hilarious. And yes, Gladiator, I know it really boils the piss of ancient historians, and yeah. I can understand why. And and yes, Robin Hood, okay, the landing craft, there. Just oh, they're hilarious. hysterical! I was I was nearly thrown out of the cinema. I was laughing that loud. But with this, it's like every single shot is like that. So the thing that Ridley Scott's always been able to do is take the essence of a period and bring it to life on film. And he sort of does the visuals really quite well in a lot of this, you know, because what he's done is he's taken some key paintings from this period and gone, how do I put that into the moving image? 
And he's bloody successful at doing that. And there are a whole sequence of them. Napoleon and the Sphinx, uh, Napoleon and the Pharaohs. Some of the great, the great cavalry charge at Waterloo. There's a moment where you could pause the film and then put the famous panorama that's actually housed on the battlefield side by side and go same image. Yeah. You know, spot the difference. And he does, he does that with the coronation as well. He's got the potential. And there even, I mean, the coronation is a classic example of this. There are even little touches in there where he bothers. So, for example, the coronation painting is done by a very famous painting, and he has cast somebody to stand there on set, acting the part of that painter, doing the preliminary sketches. So he's got that eye for detail when he wants to bloody turn up. But when you look at the thing as a whole, part of the issue is just what I said earlier, that he's trying to create these quantum leaps, but it's done in a messy way. So according to Ridley Scott, Napoleon marches into Russia. Yeah. Everybody knows about how that goes catastrophically wrong. And then Napoleon gets out of Russia and he's lost the army. So he therefore apparently is instantly forced to abdicate. But literally one of the lines in the next scene is, so you lost the army in Russia. Therefore you've lost the confidence of everybody. Now you need to abdicate. I'm, I'm sorry. Do, do we not like understand how the Napoleonic era worked? Do we not understand Napoleon's level of control in the country, his level of popular support? The idea that sometimes things go badly in war. There's a little thing called the Battle of Leipzig, literally the largest fucking battle to be fought before the First World War that just gets sideswiped because, hey, that happens in 1813. The Moscow debacle happens in 1812, and we need to hurry the hell up and get to Waterloo. So we're just going to ignore 1813. We're going to ignore 1814 because, you know, what does any of that matter? And we're just going to jump to Elba. And you just sort of think, you you could have taken this more slowly. And I think and I, I think a lot about this. Would people have resented him just telling the first half of the story? You could have taken this to seventeen ninety nine, Napoleon's rise to power. You could have finished with the Brumaire coup. You could have left people with a sense of why this guy rises to power, what his character was, because this is what's missing the whole way through. Why did Literally, millions of men follow Napoleon to their deaths. I haven't got a bloody clue after watching this film. Genuinely haven't got a clue. None of the charisma, none of the flair, none of the talent. This man was is often described as one of the gods of war. Now, it's claimed, actually, that the British call him the god of war by one of uh, Ridley Scott's advisors, which possibly points to some of the problems. When your historical advisors are, you know, chatting absolute bollocks, about what different people said, that's a problem. Because it wasn't the British who described Napoleon as a god of war. It was Clausewitz, who is mm-hmm. famous for not being British. But, you know, that side ran to side. Napoleon has an innate skill. You don't get that with this film. You've got no comprehension of why he is good. He's just a guy who gets stuck in sometimes, shouts some ideas, and people do what he says. That's not Napoleon. Yeah. That's not even close to why he was so successful. It's, it's, it beggars belief that you can take so much raw material, so much talent and just make it feel so banal. And part of this problem 
is that they're making everything about Josephine. And what I'm about to say next may shock you, Paul. You might be baffled. You may even be disturbed, but it has to be said. Brace yourself. You, you've my got. I mean, you know, we've done pig seduction, so I'm I'm ready for a fairly low bar here. You're you're going to need a stiff drink after I say this, but I have to tell you and the listeners, the Napoleonic Wars is not a conflict that you could legitimately rechristen the War for Josephine's Lady Garden. Well, that hit me from left field. Indeed. Unfortunately, Ridley Scott did not get that memo. The entire film is almost exclusively about Josephine. Napoleon abandons his army in Egypt because Josephine is having an affair. He didn't. He abandoned it because he knew the game was up. He'd screwed up a campaign in the Holy Lands and there was unrest in France and he went to capitalise. But never mind. It's all about Josephine. Josephine is in bed with someone else. Therefore, Napoleon forgets that he's in command of an army forgets the consequences of all of that, and runs back to France in order to throw all of her stuff out into the rain. And then she begs for him to forgive her. What? And then, again, inconsistency. Later in the scene that follows of Josephine trying to persuade Napoleon to take her back, she asks, did you have lovers? And Napoleon goes, yes. Now, tick for historical accuracy, yes, Napoleon did have his lovers. But nobody's thought about that in the context of the script. The hypocrisy, you would expect Josephine to then go, the fuck? So (laughs) I'm in bed with Hippolyte Charles, and you come back and you throw all of my stuff out in the rain, but it's okay for you to just go shagging your way around Egypt, and I'm meant to be okay with that? Again, sheer bloody laziness. But Napoleon supposedly comes back from Elba in 1815, because Josephine is getting handsy with Tsar Alexander of Russia. Now, there's one small problem with that suggestion. Napoleon returns from Elba in 1815. In 1814, Josephine dies. She's literally not even alive. Now, I do understand artistic license. Yeah, but this is Braveheart level of bullshit here, isn't it? It completely is. It completely is. And almost every moment of this film is full of this kind of bollocks. The first hour is all right, but I'll tell you why the first hour is all right. They bother to go beyond Napoleon. So you don't get this nonsense about what supposedly motivated the guy. And instead, you've got much more about the the context, the wider world, the stuff that actually influences what the fuck is meant to have happened. And deep breath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Okay, so moving on with Ridley Scott, you know, you'll not be alone in having a reaction to Ridley Scott's well, were you there comment. And I believe he's effectively told Dan Snow to shut the fuck up. So he he has. So on behalf of historians everywhere, here's your right of reply. What would you like to say back to him? Bear in mind, I'm the publisher here. I can be libeled. Okay, so I'll be I'll be more delicate than I might otherwise have been. So Ridley Scott chatting shit about history is like me deciding that I can comment on how to direct people in a big budget movie because I own an iPhone and I have a big gob. It's the same level of disrespect for the fact that these things take years of skill. Were you there? It's just such a bullshit comment. Neither were you, Ridley, for Christ's sake. But do you know what? Historians do know, they know where to find the words of the people who were actually there. Because surprisingly enough, we don't just make this stuff up based on a bad dream we had after eating too much cheese. That depends on which author you are. This is true, actually. I haven't factored in the hack crappy historians in there. But even they sort of vaguely bother to read a book before they start. And this is part of the problem. His his side comment about, oh, only the first two books. I mean, Cupcake, have you heard of the concept of bias at all? You know, the idea that the first two books might be written by people who had an agenda (laughs) is quite fundamental to how that might influence the contents of that book. They might leave things out. And funnily enough, the first history of the Napoleonic Wars, where does it originate from? Napoleon's own damned mouth. That is literally at the heart of the rage that I gave you last time. Napoleon is the exception to the rule that the history is written by the winners. Because he spends so long in St. Helena, he's able to dictate his thoughts and his machinations and scapegoat pretty much everybody for all of his failings over the course of his career. So if you're going to read the first book, then you're going to have a problem. I just. It's the kind of thing that I would expect. I used to teach in a secondary school and I taught students of all abilities. And it's the sort of comment I would expect some of my less sharp 11 year olds to make. You know, how do we know yeah. all of this? Because you weren't there. So you're not that old. It, I mean, thanks for the backhanded compliment. No, I don't look like I'm 200, funnily enough, but it, it's just. I, I know why he's done it. And this is what's so insidious about it, because it's all about the publicity, right? Mm. He, But in doing that, he's biting the hand that feeds. Because if you piss off too many history types, and I'm talking about the fans as well as the pros here, because actually the fans know that he's chatting utter bollocks, then what you're going to find is that credible historians who actually know what they're talking about don't want to work with you. And then that's going to affect the quality of your other movies, and it's going to become a vicious, self-repeating circle. It wasn't necessary to try and rip the historical community a new one and get your retaliation in first, because you can just say something very simple. I'm a director, and I need to balance this. I'm not here to be a slave to the history. That's fair. That's healthy. Frankly, that's literally what half the bloody historians have been saying. So when he turns around to people and says, get a life, which I think is what he said to Dan Snow. Get a life. I'm not being funny. Dan Snow 
has spent a bloody long time bringing actual factual history to the masses. He's widely regarded as somebody who is incredibly effective at engaging people in various periods of history, bringing them some content. You know, he only went and set up a bloody company dedicated to that kind of stuff. He, He does rather know his business. And he's not alone in that kind of thing. Take your good self. You. You're a reenactor, right? Yep. You are part of the living history community. You spend a lot of your spare time going to places and telling people about the history. That is part of your life. I spent three years doing a BA, one doing an MA, five doing a doctorate. I've been reading about this period since I was 13 and researching it properly for a grand total of 13 years. This is literally our professional lives. Just like Ridley's is the art of movie making. So just as I don't presume to lecture him on the art of film, who the fuck does he think he is to lecture people like me on actual history? Well put, sir. Well put. So we, you mentioned, you mentioned battles that are overlooked. You mentioned battles that aren't overlooked. And you mentioned as well that we are going to talk about Waterloo. So. So the battle scenes, I mean, Ridley Scott's always been good for a scrap. You have a look at Gladiator. I mean, we say what you like about Kingdom of Heaven. Its battle scenes are, you know, wide sweeping, you know, re- really quite epic. So so what are we talking about here, both in terms of any degree of realism, telescopic Baker rifles aside, and in terms of actual spectacle and the wow of what we're seeing on the battlefield? There is more tactical awareness in the first 10 minutes of Gladiator than there are in two hours and 38 minutes of Napoleon. These battles aren't battles in any kind of tactical sense. I don't know what the fuck happened in terms of his understanding of tactics and the use of cavalry, but I'll give you some examples. What I will say, actually, Toulon is okay. The the Siege of Toulon, that I can get behind. There's enough in there that you kind of go, okay, this whole idea that he then fired heated shots on the warships, British warships, utter bollocks, but I'll let him get away with that one because visual spectacle, why not? Let's yeah. let's give him something. Let's not tear everything to pieces. But Austerlitz, fucking hell, it's it's impressive that you can tell the story of Austerlitz in such a shit way, quite frankly, because it's not even the ice situation. So the, the thing that everybody's expecting me to rant about is, oh, well, in reality, Napoleon didn't really trap all of the Austrian army on the ice and they didn't all drown because they drained the lakes and what they found was only two dead bodies, which is all true. Do I give a shit about that? Not particularly, because I can understand the visual spectacle and it ties in with the Napoleonic myth. So a lot of us were speculating before this, maybe this is the entire Napoleonic story told in hindsight through Napoleon's own eyes. Maybe there's something really clever going on here because it's Ridley Scott. This guy knows how to tell a story. He's done some cracking films. The Duelists was proof that he's he's got potential when it comes to this period. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something really clever going on here, but oh no. What happens with Auslitz is they forget that sometimes a script needs to be consistent. All of these battle scenes are more like brawls in a bar than Napoleonic battles. So if you're a real purist, you'll look at the fact that Napoleon shouts a command, 
and then apparently his entire army hears him and does precisely what he says, which isn't quite how it works, surprisingly, but you can you can sort of get away with it. But then at the uh, same How do you know, man? You weren't there. Precisely. This is why I need to shut the fuck up and get a <laughs> life, right? Think back to Gladiator. They send a signal, right? Yeah. They, they've, when the cavalry goes around the back of the barbarian army, they fire a flaming arrow, and that's the signal. Right, you start your assault, we're on our way. So he's got that ability to think, to find some inventive solutions to these problems. But no. But even if you want to park that, there are moments in Auschwitz, I'm going to give you two quotes, where somebody forgot to check that line 47 of the script corresponds with line 45. Example number one. Napoleon shouts to his infantry, Infantry forward, take their position on the high ground. And you go, okay, fine. Taking the Pratt's and Heights. This is good. Fantastic. Well done, Ridley. We've got some historical accuracy in there. Cut two. The infantry jumping up, charging down the hill into a valley in a frontal assault that sees them getting sucked into the melee that is already ensuing on the valley floor. You didn't need to be that thick. You could just have cut the film a bit better. You know, it, that that's not that hard. Then cut to Napoleon going, Cavalry, cut off their retreat! At which point, cut to the cavalry, following the infantry in a frontal assault into the melee that's turned into a brawl that has no bearing on cutting off of retreats or any of that. And all you've got to do, you haven't even got to be historically literate, you haven't got to be tactically minded. Yeah, you're on the wrong side of the battlefield to cut off a retreat. Literally in the wrong bloody place, disobeying orders. It, you, consistency. And it's it's this that really pisses me off, that it's just sloppy. It's lazy. You know, you, you're not even talking about historical precision here. You're talking about just bothering to make sure that your script hangs together. And this is my beef, that I wanted this film. I didn't want this film to be completely historical accurate. Genuinely, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't think it was a good idea. I didn't think it was smart. I thought it was going to be. And if it's too historically accurate, then it takes something away. You'd potentially take out some of the drama that you can tell with all of this story. I wasn't expecting it to be 50% historically accurate. I'd have settled for about 20, not like 10, which is what we've actually got. You don't, you don't need to make it a badly edited film. And that's what this is. You've got the same kind of thing. I don't know why he's forgotten the idea of tactics, but you've got the same thing for the depiction of Borodino. You've just got this sweeping cavalry charge. In go the cavalry. They smash their way through, and you've got some very impressive, very bloody, very kind of shocking scenes of people being blown out of the way by, frankly, moving horse flesh and all of that. And sure, that that look, that's a look, right? Mm. And you kind of look at that and you go... Why? Why would you why would you tell Borodino in that way? Why would you just have the infantry stand there like imbeciles and stand in line to receive cavalry? And and part of the issue here is that he then knows what's coming for his Waterloo scenes, where he does bother to have the infantry form square. Mm-hmm. Probably because he's seen a painting of it. So he or knows what sharp Waterloo. Or he's what sharp, that that is an option. But we're on Waterloo now, so why don't we continue with that rant? Because bear in mind when I say this, I watched Vanity Fair, which I thought was 
frankly, it frankly used Waterloo as an excuse, which is fine because that's what the story does. Yeah. But Vanity Fair's depiction of Waterloo was not particularly good. It was at best adequate. This is what you see in the Napoleon movie is far and away, hands down, the worst depiction of Waterloo I have seen in my entire life. If you used five reenactors, you could probably get a better representation of what went down in this battle. It's not Waterloo. It's Waterloo on the song. 1917 meets Sharp is a better indication of what you actually get on this screen. Ridley Scott has decided that what Wellington failed to do, that he needed to do at Waterloo, was dig trenches. I kid you not, the entire battlefield consists of a series of ditches that run along Wellington's position. And the infantry are deployed in those... I'm speechless. I'm speechless here because, like, first of all, why would you really go to town on changing the overall tactics of the guy who freaking won? And and say, you know, I wouldn't say that trench warfare is not a thing in the Napoleonic period, but it belongs in sieges. It absolutely does. You know, there is a time and a place. Not that we get any sieges beyond too long, but again, you kind of go, well, don't be picky, Zach. You know, why are you being so anal about the whole thing? And you're like, well, yes, okay. Put that in a historical box. But trenches at Waterloo, really? You just, you don't need to do this. And then it gets worse because the infantry are in, the Allied infantry are in the trenches. They fend off the first infantry assault. So you go, tick, well done, Ridley. At least you've got the fact that it starts with an infantry assault. Doesn't bother with Hougamont and Lahayson and all the rest of it. But mm-hmm. hey, you know, maybe I'm getting too focused on the granular nitty gritty. I don't you know. know. You know, Sharp managed it with probably a 25th of the budget. I know. But, you know, it, it, this is the point that even how far do you, do you wipe away your lines in the sand before you actually go, no, you know what? This is total bullshit. Because what then follows is that Napoleon sends in the cavalry and you sort of go, yeah, okay. Ney's cavalry charges side rant. The marshals are just. Uh, the, the, these men were so integral to Napoleon's success on the battlefield, and they are literally just moving dummies. They barely say a word throughout the entire thing. Davou, Bertier, Ney gets a look in because of the cavalry charge at Waterloo, but that's about it. You know, these people were fucking important in the context of why Napoleon was so successful. And they're just, they're, they're literally, they don't say a word in the entire movie. And sure, character development, all the rest of it, complex, messy, takes time. But are you making a film about Napoleon and who he was and why he was successful and why he matters? Or are you making a film about how Napoleon wants to get in Josephine's bed? You know, what, what's mm-hmm. the priority here? Because when it comes to this, this thing that I keep avoiding talking about, because I kept getting distracted by side rants, when it comes to the cavalry charges, these infantry, safe in their trenches, do one of the most baffling things I have ever seen in my entire life. Let me guess. Let me guess. Is it climb out of the trenches and form square? It's exactly what they fucking Oh! Do. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just, I'm lost for words. Because the whole point about being in a trench is that it's meant to provide cover. What is your cavalryman on horseback with his sabre going to do if you're in a bloody great hole in the ground out of reach of his frigging saber. It's, it's nonsensical. This is my point. 
Nobody stopped to think any of these things through. And that's what pisses me off. I will always sing the virtues of Master and Commander for a very mm-hmm. simple reason. They bothered to actually think. And more than that, they bothered to get the little things right. Is it a perfect film from a storytelling perspective? No. The whole thing around the Galapagos is a bit kind of, mm, and there are points where it lags a bit. It is not the perfect film. But from a historical perspective, they went to the trouble of sending Paul Bettany to go and be educated by a former army surgeon who is the leading expert on surgery during the Napoleonic period on how the hell a surgeon would have handled those surgical implements during this period so that when he's manipulating those tools on screen, he's doing it in a historically accurate way. That's precision. And uh, if you're bothering to go to that level of detail, because I wouldn't know one way or another, very few people actually would know whether or not he's handling those in a historically accurate way. But if they're bothering to do that, it's an indication of how you can focus on getting the little things right and not go to the trouble of strapping bloody great telescopes on the top of Baker rifles because, hey, why the hell not? Well, well, thank you very much. Do you have any, do you have any closing comments? And then I would, uh, I would invite you to give the, the, the closing score your one to five star rating. Oh, I, I will shock you with my one to five star rating. Truly, I will. How do you sum this movie up? It doesn't work as a movie. The character development is almost non-existent. As I said earlier, the Napoleonic Wars is not a conflict that you can describe as the war for Josephine's Lady Garden. I would have dearly loved if some of the supporting characters were more than just caricatures. There is uh, a Wellington cast in this who decries at one point Napoleon's egotism and lack of simple good manners. Because we all know that the single biggest problem that the Allies had with Napoleon was that he didn't know which knife to use when the fish course was served at dinner, right? He is the sort of monster that would serve red wine with salmon. This is true. This is true. This, This film is quite simply sloppy. And that is what I find ever so slightly offensive because there is so much potential in this story. And there are moments where you see what this film could have been the best of them is when Joaquin Phoenix is playing Napoleon coming back from Elba and he's stopped by troops of the 5th Regiment. And he, with tears in his eyes and a voice dripping with emotion, he declares to the men, I am melancholy for my home and for our victories together. Will you join me? And in that moment, me, one of the most ardent anti-Bonapartists, somebody who has very little time for Napoleon, felt pity for the man. And that is what is so depressing, that this film had the potential to make you sit there and feel something, to get people thinking and feeling and understanding why this period of history matters. And we do not have that. You leave this cinema not giving a flying fuck about the Napoleonic era. And that isn't just a missed opportunity. It's a fucking travesty of filmmaking. How many stars out of 10? Minus five. Thank you very much, Zach. Do you, do you feel better? Slightly. Can we go for another hour? Do I have to pay <laughs> extra for that? Sorry, even I want to see my wife at some point. Just, well, just remember, 
you know, Head pig noises. grunting noises <laughs> might be the, 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 the little thing that you never knew. Never knew. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I do hope you've enjoyed that. If that hasn't put you off, then as at time of recording, Napoleon is currently in cinemas. I can sure, I'm sure you can all make up your own minds. But if you're leaning towards a real contribution to Napoleonic history, then why not save giving money over to Ridley Scott and make a donation or join up with the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity? And you can do so at nrwgc.com. You can follow them on Twitter at nrwg charity and you can follow zach on twitter at zed white history and i'm sure he'll be happy to respond to any vitriolic or praising comments that you may have but once again zach thank you very much for for attending your emergency therapy it was very generous of you to find time to slot me in dr babble Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We would really appreciate any reviews you could leave for us with Apple, Podchaser, or Amazon. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage, or individually, I am at Paul Bavel, and Kyle is at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this, then please support us on Patreon. For in return for your cherished £5 per month, we will give you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next time, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.